Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Todd M. Brusco. He's an associate professor with the Diabetes Institute at University of Florida in the College of Medicine. And he appears to focus on type 1 diabetes. So uh, we'll talk about that. So Todd, thanks for coming. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Usually the people that study type 1 have type 1 or know someone that does have it. But what's your reasoning? Why why diabetes and why this type? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, so I've, I've had family members with uh, type 2 diabetes, but not type 1 specifically. So Type 1 diabetes, is uh, it, it fits in this category of being autoimmune in origin, and I've always been fascinated with uh, uh, the immune system in general and the complexity of it, including you know, some of the genetic origins of the disease itself. So it started for me uh, back you know, all the way from a time when I, when I was a, a young undergraduate researcher in a genetics of type 1 diabetes lab, and I've just stayed with it ever since. Okay. Well, what, what aspects of type 1 are you focused in on? Yeah, so my lab uh, does uh, a mixture of different uh, research. So most of what we do is trying to understand how the disease forms in individuals that are at higher genetic risk. So individuals that have family members that uh, may have type 1 diabetes as well. So from that perspective, we try and understand uh, what genes are involved in the disease process and how those influence how the immune system responds in individuals that are at higher genetic risk. And then we're interested in biomarkers and, and as well. So as people grow and develop and uh, develop uh, some of the, the biomarkers of disease progression, you know, the most apparent are, are what are referred to as autoantibodies. So individuals eventually develop antibodies that recognize parts of their own beta cells that make insulin. Uh, but there are also other biomarkers. So it's a primarily a T-cell driven autoimmune disease. So we're interested in tracking how T-cells develop over time and working on developing biomarkers in that regard as well. My lab also has a strong interest in regulatory T-cells. So these are a small white blood cell in circulation that uh, is there to keep the immune system in check. Uh, actually, if you have a, a mutation in one of the key genes that uh, is responsible for Treg development, you develop not only diseases like type 1 diabetes, but uh, really severe forms uh, of autoimmune conditions that attack all sorts of uh, organs throughout your body, the syndrome called IPEX syndrome. So we, we've been interested in a long time in trying to correct some of these defects in people that develop autoimmunity and finding ways uh, to do that in a much more targeted and sort of precision medicine guided strategy. And so that involves understanding the different paths that people take to disease and also trying to target specific antigens and these T cells that we think are important for keeping things in check. Are people born with type one? And, you know, yeah. Why is there a latency? It seems like there's a huge variability in 
That is an amazing when they get variability. It. Yeah. So uh, we're finding some of the earliest uh, biomarkers of, of disease progression in, in kids as young as, uh, you know, six months to a year of age, we can begin to find some of these autoantibodies. So the implication there is that some of whatever is triggering uh, the autoimmunity to start can happen very, very early in, in life and potentially even in utero and some of the subjects that are at the very highest genetic risk for developing it. On the other end of the spectrum, you can develop type 1 diabetes all the way out to 80 years of age. So even though we really? used to call it juvenile uh, form of type or of diabetes, it, it really can develop through the entire uh, lifespan. So it's really variable in terms of when it can actually present itself. Typically, when, when's, when's typical? Yeah. Yeah. So typically, I mean, you see this sort of peaking uh, right before puberty in, in most subjects locally here, where we see the our, our largest uh, peak of disease incidence. But when we, like I said, when we follow some of these serological biomarkers, these autoantibodies, uh, they can they show up uh, oftentimes within the first two years of life, and it, it may just be a, a long, longer drawn out process for when the disease actually clinically presents. You know, so these these kids oftentimes they'll present with uh, being extremely thirsty and uh, constant urination. And they'll, in the most severe form, they actually go into a state called diabetic ketoacidosis, where they oftentimes wind up in the emergency room and uh, need to get their blood sugars back under into the normal range. So the uh, clinical presentation can be quite severe. And, and that's really one of the reasons why we're so interested in finding these, these biomarkers of disease progression. Well, what are some of these specific antibodies and what do they tell you? Like, what are the antibodies against? Yeah, so these, these antibodies are, are really, um, they're markers. Uh, they tend to recognize parts of uh, a beta cell itself. So they're responsive to insulin or forms of insulin. There are other proteins that are present within beta cells, these cells that make insulin in your body uh, called GAD, IA2. ZNT8. So these are all things that are kind of tissue restricted and, and they really point us to this targeted autoimmune response that's occurring in patients that develop type 1 diabetes. And the thing that is really powerful about them as biomarkers is that the more you have, the more likely an individual is uh, to develop disease. So once you develop, once an individual has two of these uh, autoantibodies present, they have a, a, a fairly high chance over the next five years of developing disease. Has anyone identified how type 1 starts? Yeah, so there's, a, there's large groups that and consortia throughout the U.S. and even in, uh, throughout the world that are looking at this, this much more difficult question of what are some of the environmental triggers of diabetes. So clearly there's, there's been a long-term interest in viral infections as a potential trigger uh, for breaking what we refer to as immunological tolerance. What happens in autoimmunity in general is that your immune system should tolerate your own tissues and not fight your own tissues as being foreign. And something that occurs, whether it's because of underlying genetic susceptibility or exposure to something like a viral trigger that causes a break in those normal defenses, and, and this trigger of uh, autoimmune destruction. So there are hints that uh, there are repeated viral infections in early development. In type 1 diabetes, there have been some, uh, some evidence of enteroviral infections uh, being uh, involved in 
the early stages of, of development of the immune system as, as being linked with the, the progression of autoimmunity. So certainly there are hints there. What we haven't seemed to, to really hone in on are viruses that would directly infect uh, beta cells. And, and there's been a lot of extensive research looking for those types of viruses that might cause direct uh, infection within the pancreas and within uh, the islets that hold these uh, insulin-producing beta cells. Yeah, but so far as I know, the pancreas has like two functions, you know, endocrine and exocrine function. But the type 1 diabetes appears to be very specific to beta cell destruction only and not the other pancreatic cells. So I guess yeah, it's so either like the membrane the, expression or the products produced well, by the beta cells. So I think we're learning more and more uh, as we go along here. So I'm involved in this large network called the, the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes that's located here at the University of Florida. And basically what we do is if anyone dies in, in the continental United States and they happen to have type 1 diabetes or these biomarkers of type 1 diabetes and they become an organ donor, we actually try to acquire their pancreas locally here at UF. And we process that pancreas and then distribute it to investigators throughout the world to really understand what's actually happening in that target organ itself. So that then goes out to over 150 uh, affiliated uh, researchers throughout the world. And one of the things that we found is that um, it does not appear to be just uh, the islet and just beta cells that are impacted. So the pancreas in general may be as much as uh, 45% smaller in someone that develops type 1 diabetes. So that, that can't be explained simply because of the loss of, of beta cells that make insulin. So there's, there's some other inflammation or atrophy going on in, in patients that uh, develop type 1 diabetes. And we actually see this in, in some of the relatives as well. So or those that are, are at risk for progressing to disease. And this has been shown now by uh, MRI imaging that the, the pancreas is just generally smaller. So, you know, perhaps some of these individuals uh, kind of start off with less uh, overall pancreatic mass or, or beta cell mass, and that puts them at higher susceptibility uh, for developing disease. So there does, there's, there's subclinical deficiencies of some of these um, uh, other uh, asiner uh, functions as well. So there's less uh, trypsinogen and, and lipase that are being made out of uh, the exocrine uh, pancreas as well. But if the pancreas is smaller, they have less of an endowment of beta cells. Why wouldn't they um, fall into type 2 more readily versus type 1? Why would there be an autoimmune response instead of just, a, you know, again, type 2 response? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So the path to down the, the type 2 versus the type 1 sort of the disease presentations are very different and, and they're very different in terms of genetic susceptibility as well. So the genetics of type 1 diabetes become very complex. And uh, uh, without getting into too much detail, all I will say is that the majority of the genetic risk, so almost half of the overall genetic risk uh, for type 1 diabetes comes from this one region in the genome around chromosome 6 that encodes something called uh, HLA or human lymphocyte antigen. And um, that is, uh, that's common, uh, a common gene that's uh, often associated with autoimmune diseases in general. And that's, uh, so the genetic risk elements in type 1 diabetes are these molecules called 
primarily DR3 and DR4. Now type two diabetes is a very different clinical presentation. So it's uh, not much, uh, it's not as uh, associated with autoimmunity as it is with insulin resistance overall. Uh, so the, the whole clinical presentation is very different, but type two diabetes does have a somewhat reduced pancreatic uh, volume as well. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So is it that, do you think people are born with it? When they get type two diabetes, that predisposes. Yeah, them so that's a, it is a good question. So at least in type one diabetes, my colleagues and collaborators, Dr. Uh, Michael Haller and uh, Martha Campbell Thompson, are doing longitudinal imaging studies of individuals that are at elevated risk. So relatives of type ones and and subjects that have these multiple autoantibodies present. And it does appear that during the disease progression, there is some shrinking of the pancreas on the way to the development of type 1 diabetes. So that it's it, it may be that there's a lower starting point, but there's also clearly a progressive loss of mass as well as individuals progress. I guess, well, you can't really biopsy a pancreas, so it would probably be dangerous and uh, like super invasive. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's been tried, actually. And it's, uh, it it was, uh, just as you suspected, it was, it was kind of a a bad outcome uh, in terms of uh, what you could imagine from poking a hole in the pancreas that's full of digestive enzymes. So that will likely never happen again. So if we're going to do these types of longitudinal studies, it's going to have to be from these non-invasive imaging types of approaches where the, the pancreas itself is not disturbed. You know, of the cadaver pancreases that have been obtained, is there a wide age distribution? The program in general has collected over 500 uh, pancreases from organ donors. And that includes, you know, not only patients with type 1 diabetes, but control pancreases and pancreases from individuals that have may have other rare forms of diabetes. So monogenic forms of diabetes from uh, mutations and key genes for insulin processing to CF-related diabetes, cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. So there's a lot of different comparisons there to really understand what's unique about the pathology in type 1 diabetes versus some of these other clinical presentations that are present in, in other forms of diabetes as well. And they do. They span the whole age range from very young subjects to uh, what we refer to are for studies that are uh, titled the medalists that have had type 1 diabetes uh, for, for decades. And one of the fascinating findings out of NPOD is that even in subjects that have had type 1 diabetes for decades, we can still find some residual islets and beta cells that contain some insulin often. So it's not a complete loss. And, and there's some hope that we could somehow recover or restore some of that endogenous beta cell function in even individuals that have long-term type 1 diabetes. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What about using uh, stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells and you know differentiating them to be islets and then implanting them back into a person with type 1? Yeah, so there are, there are a number of groups that have those types of approaches underway. So that's kind of a restorative uh, type of therapy. So if someone really has destroyed so much of their endogenous uh, beta cell mass that they, they can no longer produce sufficient insulin, then you have to think about those types of therapies. So it could be from IPS. And I think that has a lot of advantages in terms of 
being the same genetic sort of copy as the person who might be uh, receiving it, um, or at least matched in terms of uh, those tissue matching antigens that I was talking about as well, or these embryological uh, ES-derived stem cells as well. There, I think the, the challenge becomes how do you then protect those derived beta cells from not only, so if they're not genetically matched, you have to protect them from alloimmune responses. So someone's immune system will recognize them as being foreign and potentially kill them off. Or in, in the, the real challenge in type one diabetes as well is that because they developed autoimmunity initially, you not only have to protect them from that alloimmune response, but you have to protect them from a recurrent autoimmune response. So because these are, you know, going to be new islet uh, or insulin producing uh, cells, they have the potential to again, reject them uh, for, from that autoimmune response. So there's, there's a couple challenges there. And, and there, you know, there are, are groups of investigators that are trying to put them in protective devices or cover them, kind of sheath them from recognition by the immune system. Uh, and prevent them from being rejected again. You know, is there any way to, uh, yeah, to look a, at the blood, the downstream blood from the eyelets, and look for like extracellular vesicles in it that they can they can tie back to the eyelets? There's a lot of uh, researchers who have been looking at yeah all of these signatures of of what is a a beta cell and and what does it release into circulation, whether it's micro RNAs, these you know molecular biomarkers of unique cell subsets or uh, the vesicles that you're we're talking about, though. So there's certainly lots of efforts to, and this is really one of one of the key needs in the field is to how do we monitor the the health and survival and numbers of of beta cells and in individuals as they progress to type one diabetes or after a replacement therapy, like like transplanting uh, these you know, stem cell derived beta cells. Is there any way to put any? Uh, I don't know some kind of an implant into the duct, you know, the pancreas. I know you wouldn't get the beta cell function that goes in the blood, but, you know, maybe by looking at the other function, you can infer what's going on in the beta cell side. Yeah, so people have looked at, at differences in, in sort of uh, where these replacement therapies would go. And the determination of, of where it will go is a combination of what is safe from an FDA perspective in terms of um, if something were to go wrong, can you easily access it and retrieve that type of material? And, and then also there's this consideration of where is it going to be sufficiently vascularized so that it engrafts well and functions well. And there are also some differences in, in where it may reside in terms of how the immune system may actually respond to that engraftment as well. So all of these are ongoing areas of, of active research, including this notion of encapsulating these new beta cells and then protecting them from rejection by the immune system. And, you know, it's not just a physical protection. You know, we the, the exciting thing that we're able to do now in terms of gene editing some of these cells at an ES stage or even in an I, IPS stage is that we can think about knocking out genes that the immune system needs to kind of recognize these tissues. And, and that obviously presents its own set of challenges, but it is an exciting time to think about shielding them, even by genetic editing, uh, from autoimmune attack. 
So the autoimmune attack, what is the nature of it? You mentioned T-cells earlier on. I've heard other people talk about that. So like, has it been specified the method of attack? One of the, the clearest signals that we have of what is going on is when we look in these organ donors with type 1 diabetes and we look in, in histological sections of the pancreas, and it, when we zoom down in on islets and, and see beta cells at disease onset, sort of, you know, at when the disease is most active, we can find these infiltrating white blood cells, lymphocytes, right there in the islets uh, in proximity to insulin-producing beta cells. So we know that these beta cells have their flags up, that something is going on, that there's some sort of stress in that local microenvironment. And that puts them at sort of in the state of being surveyed by the immune system. And we have white blood cells, uh, CD8 cells in particular, that can directly recognize antigens in, in beta cells. And the thinking is that those CD8 T cells can directly kill or lyse beta cells. So there, there have been a number of clinical trials in patients with type 1 diabetes to target the immune system and block some of that autoimmune uh, T cell killing. And the agents that have had some of the most uh, success in the clinic are agents that recognize uh, antigens that are expressed on the surface of T cells. So anti-CD3, CD3 is this molecule that's associated with the T cell receptor. Alephacept, which recognize a molecule that's on the surface of uh, activated effector cells as well. And then here at the University of Florida, we've been working with antithymocyte globulin, which is a a combination of antibodies that recognize primarily T cells as well and, and can blunt some of the host immune response in individuals that are developing type 1 diabetes. So all of those agents have shown some efficacy in blocking uh, some of the autoimmune attack in individuals at when they present with clinical onset of disease. Anti-CD3 has actually been moved back in that process to the point where it's been treated, you know, it, patients that show those autoantibodies that we know are at really high risk of developing disease have been given anti-CD3. And it's been shown to delay the onset of disease for as much as two years in, in some subjects. So there's a hope that as we understand more and more about how this disease occurs, that we'll have a better sense of how to target some of these cells that are doing the killing and hopefully, you know, re-educate them uh, for towards what we refer to as immunological tolerance over time. Well, what are the beta cells expressing on their their membranes that's different? That would you know, if you can, if you put them side by side, a beta cell that uh, you know is open to immune attack versus one that's not. What's the difference? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I you know, I think it comes down to uh, how much stress they may be under, uh, metabolic stress, and and how they deal with that stress. There is some evidence that the way a, a metabolically stressed beta cell uh, the types of proteins and things that they present on their surface change over time under states of uh, inflammation or inflammatory stress. And a lot of this comes down to that question of, is it the genetics that's putting someone at increased susceptibility, or is it these environmental stressors or, or viral infections that's putting them at uh, increased susceptibility, or is it the combination of the two? And that's really where the complexity of it uh, falls out. So it's not just these uh, HLA molecules that put someone at higher risk. There are about 
uh, roughly 60 other loci in the genome that confer very smaller amounts of overall genetic risk. Uh, but we can kind of get a sense for what that is by adding up all of these other uh, minor risk loci throughout the genome. Well, what kinds of uh, items are expressed on the membranes of the cell? So there are pieces of insulin that wind up getting presented on the cell surface. So every cell in your body has kind of a machinery to take little pieces of itself and present it on the surface for the immune system to come around and surveil. And, and normally your immune system doesn't respond to those alone if you're not in a state of active infection. So if you can think about a scenario where if you got infected with a virus and that virus got into your cells and used your, your cellular machinery to make additional copies of that virus, then your immune system kind of gets a sense that something is going on and it has to kill off those cells to prevent viral spread and replication. So it may very well be that the immune system simply thinks that there is a, an ongoing stress or viral infection in beta cells of individuals that develop type 1 diabetes. Even if there may not be, uh, there's probably signals uh, that are being received in that cell from stress uh, that are putting up these flags for the immune system in these CD8 T cells to recognize them and ultimately wind up killing them. Well, I mean, what would, what would stress a beta cell? I guess its job is to produce insulin. So if there's few of them, if the pancreas is, let's say, half, or the endowment of beta cells is half, that would probably put them under a lot of stress to do double the work. Let's exactly. Say. Yeah, no, I, I, you, so, you're, so you're asking some really um, insightful questions about what is causing this stress. And uh, beta cells are under uh, an exceptional amount of uh, metabolic strain in terms of turning out so much insulin that it actually packs into granules in, inside uh, beta cells. And some of our current thinking is that um, as you, you know, have to make a ton of this insulin within a beta cell, that also requires that there's a lot of messenger RNA that might build up and not be effectively uh, translated into a protein. And cells in your body have this unique ability to sense cellular stress and too much RNA building up. And that can raise some red flags for the immune system as well. So just by sheer metabolic strain and stress, it may actually put up some of these flags for additional immune surveillance. These are probably events that are occurring in all of us. So it's still this key question is why is it, why does your, the, the immune system of individuals who develop disease handle it in a way that uh, creates this long-term uh, downward spiral and loss of additional beta cells. And, and that is sort of a key question that is not fully addressed in the field. You know, there's 500 pancreases. Do they have different morphology? I mean, you said they're smaller. And then what about the percentage mix or the distribution of beta cells versus other cell types in them? Yeah, so those studies are, are underway now by all kinds of uh, exciting new technologies. So we can now go in and uh, at the single cell sort of resolution, we can uh, understand what genes are being expressed in beta cells versus alpha cells or delta cells within islets. It does appear that uh, this process is not uniform across the entire pancreas and that, if anything, it, it seems to be uh, enriched in the, the tail of the pancreas, kind of 
proximal to where it connects to the spleen, and then it may spread upwards towards the, the head of the pancreas. It also just happens that that region has more insulin producing beta cells. So there may just be more antigen there to kind of drive this process. But it is, again, it is very variable in terms of what's happening, not only between different individuals, but also you can have two islets almost right next to each other. One will be completely destroyed and the other will still look like a normal sort of islet and may actually still have insulin producing beta cells. And I think one of the interesting questions that we think about is that you would expect your immune system to target and kill off all of those beta cells and it doesn't. So what is it about those islets that is different? You know, what is it about uh, whether it's vasculature or innervation or, or something that is keeping them uh, protected from autoimmune attack? Yeah, that's another question. Are there any intermediate forms? So I've heard when they look and they say the beta cells are gone, they're just literally gone. There's no scarring. It's like they were never there. So are there any intermediate forms in these cadaver pancreases where you see certain islets that are halfway through destruction, or do you only see like perfectly good ones and non-existent ones? No, there's definitely intermediate forms. And, and it also gets back to that, that notion of heterogeneity and disease progression. So in general, and I, I say these as, as general concepts, but the younger individuals are that develop autoimmunity, the more severe the clinical presentation often is and the more complete the loss of beta cells uh, are. So if you develop type one diabetes at the age of two, you have a, a fairly strong autoimmune response and the loss of beta cells seems to be quite rapid. And that's very different than if you develop type one diabetes at the age of 21, for example, where you have this much slower loss of beta cells and clinical presentation. And oftentimes in those individuals that develop disease later in life, that's where we'll see these residual islets and, and residual beta cells more often than in some of the individuals that have developed at a very young age. So there's, there's quite a bit, it's, it's very closely linked to age of onset, but also some of those genetics that seem to be playing a major role. Well, do you get any information by studying these intermediate forms of islets? Like what, you know, can you now gauge destruction of an islet? What happens first? What happens near the end? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, one of the, the ideas that uh, is being investigated by uh, individuals now is whether there are protective proteins that are being expressed on the surface of some of these beta cells that still have residual insulin. And one of the, the molecules that comes to mind is, is this PDL1 molecule that might get upregulated on, on beta cells. And, and one of the reasons we think this may be an important protective mechanism is that individuals that develop cancer and, and are receiving these immune checkpoint inhibitors, a small population of them are actually developing really rapid onset type 1 diabetes, implying that if you block these checkpoints, for the immune system, it's almost releasing their immune system to recognize some of their own tissues very rapidly and induce autoimmunity. So that's one of the theories that is being investigated now about why you might have a protected islet versus an islet that's uh, fully destroyed by the autoimmune response. Last thing to ask you is the signaling to tell the pancreas, hey, produce these enzymes, produce insulin, etc. Does there appear to be a 
I don't know, an over-signaling or preferential signaling for more insulin versus other pancreatic enzymes, or is the signaling altogether somewhat corrupted or, you know, overactive or underactive in these patients? Can you tell? So what, what we've seen from uh, studies within NPOD, and, and we've seen some biomarkers in circulation as well, is that uh, insulin itself comes in this pre-pro form, and it has to be processed into mature insulin. And the processing machinery seems to be dysregulated in individuals that uh, develop type 1 diabetes. So you can kind of think of uh, an assembly chain, and you have these molecules of insulin that are coming down the pipeline. And if you speed that chain up too fast, and you make mistakes in the way that that insulin is processed, you kind of gum up the works and, and it creates some cellular stress as well. And that may make them more susceptible to autoimmune attack. So there are interesting observations that are being made in individuals that develop type 1 diabetes that they lack that processing machinery where you cut out this C-peptide portion of insulin uh, and, and you have more of this pre-pro-insulin that is just kind of residing in, in beta cells and in individuals that develop uh, type one diabetes. So that, that, okay. that thing, uh, that type of uh, event has been observed in terms of, you know, the decision to go down the path of uh, a beta cell versus an alpha cell. There are some alpha cell defects as well in type one diabetes. So I think we need to move a little bit away from this notion of this just being a beta cell disease. So there are, there's implications that the entire pancreas is impacted it's not just beta cells that are defective. There's certainly alpha cell defects as well. Yeah, I mean, well, it's somewhat troubling because the whole pancreas is smaller, less endowed. There's impaired signaling. There's other cell types that have problems. You know, how do you remedy that without a pancreas transplant? That even would work is hard. It seems like uh, how do you rehab a, you know, a pancreas that's in this state? Yeah, no, there's definitely challenges. And when we think about therapies, we oftentimes think about two, two approaches that are needed or a combination therapy that's needed. Certainly one is that we have to address the underlying autoimmunity, basically the immune system recognizing beta cells as foreign and, and we have to shut down that autoimmune response. But then in these individuals, if they've already developed clinical disease, then we have to remedy this deficiency of endogenous beta cell function, or potentially also think about these restorative therapies from either IPS or, or ES cells as well. Well, very good, Todd. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Yeah, so please uh, check out the University of Florida Diabetes Institute websites and just Google Todd Brusco and you can find our lab and what we're working on uh, currently. And uh, I'd be happy to talk and hopefully address some additional questions. That's great. Well, thank you for your work and for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.